Nehemiah chapter 9. Israel is in a good position here at the beginning of chapter 9. Seventy years earlier, Babylon came in and destroyed the city, tore down the walls, and pillaged the temple of God. But now, here, for the first time in a generation, Nehemiah and the community here have restored what they had lost. And the temple has been reestablished as a place where they can worship God as He demanded that He be worshipped. When the walls were finished, Nehemiah appointed guards so that they could preserve the treasure that they had, to preserve the work that they had already done. And in chapter 7, we also saw that he repopulated the city, made sure that the community was unified and staying there and growing so that they could uh, maintain what they had worked hard to restore. Then in chapter 8, the people got serious about hearing from God, and so they asked Ezra the priest to read to them from the Scriptures so that they would understand it and that they could obey it. It wasn't just some kind of a magical incantation that they wanted. Hey, just... Can, can you kind of just read through some of the the, um, the superstitious sayings that you have there in the Word? No, we want to understand it so that we can obey it. And that's what we saw last week in chapter 8. Here in chapter 9, they respond to God after having heard the Word of God and after having celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember, they, they saw in the Word of God they hadn't been uh, celebrating the Feast of Booths as they should have with joy and and really at all. And so they, they reestablished this important ceremony that reminded them, or memorial, I should say, that reminded them of how God had provided for them. Now they respond here to God in prayer uh, with Nehemiah being the spokesperson. So let me read uh, this chapter for us, Nehemiah chapter 9. This is the Word of God. Now on the 24th day of this month, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with dirt upon them. The descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And while they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day. And for another fourth, they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. Now on the Levites' platform stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Bunai, Sherebiah, Bani, Chenani, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Arise, bless the Lord your God forever and ever. O may your glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You have made the heavens, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them and the heavenly hosts bow down before you. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out from Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give him the land of the Canaanite and of the Hittite and the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite, to give it to his descendants, and you have fulfilled your promise, for you are righteous. 
You saw the affliction of your of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry by the Red Sea. Then you performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly toward them and made a name for yourself as it is to this day. You divided the sea before them, so they passed through the midst of the sea on dry ground, and their pursuers you hurled into the depths like a stone into raging waters. And with a pillar of cloud you led them by day, and with a pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go. Then you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven. You gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. So you made known to them your holy Sabbath and laid down for them commandments, statutes, and law through your servant Moses. You provided bread from heaven from, uh, uh, for them for their hunger. You brought forth water from a rock for them for their thirst. And you told them to enter in in order to possess the land which you swore to give them. But they, our fathers, acted arrogantly. They became stubborn and would not listen to your commandments. They refused to listen and did not remember your wondrous deeds which you had performed among them. So they became stubborn and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, and you do not forsake them. Even when they made for themselves a calf of molten metal and said, This is your God who brought you out from Egypt and committed great blasphemies. You, in your great compassion, did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not leave them by day to guide them on their way, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. Your manna you did not withhold from their mouth, and you gave them water for their thirst. Indeed, forty years you provided for them in the wilderness, and they were not in want. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet swell. You also gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted them to them as a boundary. They took possession of the land of Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, the king of Bashan. You made their sons numerous as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land which you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So their sons entered and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, And you gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land to do with them as they desired. They captured fortified cities and a fertile land. They took possession of houses full of every good thing, hewn cisterns, vineyards, olive groves, fruit trees in abundance. And so they ate, were filled, and grew fat, and reveled in your great goodness. But they became disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their backs, and killed your prophets who had admonished them, so that they might return to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you delivered them into the hand of their oppressors who oppressed them. But when they cried to you in the time of their distress, you heard from heaven. And according to your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who delivered them from the hand of their oppressors. But as soon as they had rest, they did evil again before you. Therefore you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. And when they cried again to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you rescued them according to your compassion and admonished them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted arrogantly and did not listen to your commandments but sinned against your ordinances. 
by which if a man observes them, he shall live. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not listen. However, you bore with them for many years and admonished them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hands of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great compassion, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and compassionate God. Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps His covenant and loving kindness, do not let all the hardships seem insignificant before you which has come upon us, our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and on all your people, from the days of the kings of Assyria to this day. However, you are just in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, but we have acted wickedly. For our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your admonitions with which you have admonished them. But they, in their own kingdom, with your great goodness which you gave them, with the broad and rich land which you set before them, did not serve you or turn from their evil deeds. Behold, we are slaves today. And as to the land which you gave to our fathers to eat of its fruit and its bounty, behold, we are slaves in it. Its abundant produce is for the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They also rule over our bodies and over our cattle as they please, so we are in great distress. Now because of all this, we are making an agreement in writing, and on the sealed document are the names of our leaders, our Levites, and our priests. should have seen two major themes running through this prayer by Nehemiah on behalf of the people. First, that God is compassionate and merciful. He is the provider. And second, they continue to sin against Him. And so what we see here in this chapter is that our merciful God responds with favor to those who acknowledge their sin. Aren't you thankful for that? Nehemiah speaks on behalf of his people and gives us, I think, four principles for, for our prayer to God. We learn four principles from his corporate prayer on behalf of the people. Number one, in times of prosperity, in times of prosperity, remember the goodness of your God. Verses one through eight. In times of prosperity, remember the goodness of your God. Nehemiah begins his prayer by acknowledging God's goodness in verses 1-8. through eight. Their initial response, you remember last week in chapter 8, after reading the Word of God on the first day of the seventh month, was one of humility and repentance. They were sorrowful for their sin, like we see at the beginning of this chapter as well. They were sorrowful because they had brought this trouble upon themselves. They weren't blaming God. They acknowledged their sin. But remember what Ezra, do you remember what Ezra did? He sent the people home. He said, you need to go home and be joyful. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Don't be sorrowful. God is holy. Don't be sorrowful. And so then they spent the next several days preparing for the Feast of Tabernacles, and then they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles, which was not supposed to be a feast of sorrow. It was not supposed to be one where they were dreading life and and frustrated with themselves. They were supposed to be joyful about God's provision for them. And so they spent those seven days from the 15th, to the 22nd of the month, 
they spent those days in great joy, praising God for His deliverance of their ancestors. And they did that by living in temporary dwelling places as a memorial to how God had provided for them throughout the wilderness period. So that, that time, that first part of this month after reading the Scriptures, first it was sorrow, but then Ezra said, you need to be joyful right now. We're about to celebrate this feast. So they celebrated in joy. But now when we come to chapter 9 and verse 1, two days have passed since the Feast of Tabernacles and the people uh, turn from their joy back to their grief and sorrow that they had for their sin. I think this is a proper response. There is a time for joy. There is a time in which we should praise God for what He has done, but there's also a time in which we should be acknowledging our sin. Now that the feast is over for them, they are compelled to return to their sorrowful and repentant state. They go back to mourning their sins. And that's what we see in verse 1. They come in sackcloth and dirt on them. This was the way in the ancient Near East to, to show sorrow and grief. And I think it's here um, actually a sign of repentance. Not always. Not every time you see sackcloth and ashes is it repentance in the Scriptures. But here I think it actually is. And the reason I say that is because of what Nehemiah says on behalf of the people in the rest of the chapter. In verse 2, we see their commitment to community that Israel separated themselves from the foreigners. And then we also see their connection to their ancestors in the second part of verse 2. They stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. You see, they don't see themselves as detached creatures from the rest of history. People who are long dead they actually see that they are in many ways um, recipients of the mercy that's been shown to them and also they are responsible in some way to the sins of their, their fathers. They have some identity with their ancestors. In verse 3, they again spend the entire morning reading the Word of God. Look at verse 3. While they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth day. This is similar to chapter 8, verse 3. Remember when they started from midday and went all the way till noon, probably from 6 a.m. to noon, they listened to the Word of God being read by Ezra. And then the priest went out and explained it to the people. Here, it says for a fourth of the day, they listened to the Word of God. Again, six hours. They're spending listening to God speak by means of His Word. They recognized that, that if real change was going to happen, it wasn't that they just kind of need to force themselves into a position of conformity. They needed to hear from God. They needed to be serious about what God was saying and then respond to Him. And so, they listened to God speak again through His Word. Their initial response in verses 4 and 5 is one of confirmation. Uh, um, excuse me, one of confession. Confession. In fact, the last part of verse 2 says, they stood and confessed their sins. And then, <coughs> excuse me, the second part of verse 3, and for another fourth of the day they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. So for six hours, they listened to God speak and as the Word started to be like a light shining into the dark recesses of their hearts, it, it revealed to them that they were sinners before God. This is what happens when we come into the presence of God by means of hearing from Him. We acknowledge our sin. We recognize our sin. And so for the next six hours, they confess their sins before God and, and worship Him. And that's continued in verses 4 and 5 as well. They respond to hearing God speak with confession. And then, in verses, the, the second part of verse 5 through verse 8, they respond 
to the goodness of God with praise and exaltation. This is the point that, that I think we need to draw out from the text, which is, in times of prosperity, we should remember the goodness of God. Notice what they do here uh, with the beginning of the prayer. This is Nehemiah, I think, speaking on behalf of all the people. And first, he praises God for who God is. Praises God for His character. And then, secondly, he praises God for His works. So first, His character. He praises and exalts God. The second part of verse 5. Oh, may Your glorious, glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You've made the heavens. He goes on to talk about His creative ability. And then he talks about how he's been. Uh, he talks about the works of God here in verses seven and eight. How he had uh, been faithful to Abraham. He had called him out of Ur of the Chaldeans, and he gave this land to him. He promised him this land. In times of prosperity, remember the reason I say prosperity is because of their current context. Where are the people of Israel now? They're not in Babylon anymore. They're not far away from home, 900 miles away, or, or, or um, 900,000, depending on which, which uh, path they took. They're not, they're not far away from home. They're actually back in Jerusalem where they belong. And they've restored the city, restored the worship, and here they are in effectively a time of prosperity. But they did not forget the goodness of God. They, they spend this is just a representative, um, th- this chapter here is just a representative of the long prayers that were given to God, I'm sure, during those six hours in which they confessed and worshipped God. And so I think we need to recognize this same point. We're not always going to be in valleys in our lives as Christians. We're not always going to be in valleys when it comes to uh, finances and relationships. There are times in which we'll have peace. We'll have prosperity. And in those times, those are the times when it's most dangerous for us, I think, because we can quickly forget God. We can quickly forget how we got there. We can think that it was all of us. And yet here, Israel, having depended upon God all throughout this time and then having reached the goal, having the city restored, the walls and everything in the temple, they did not forget the goodness of God. Number two, in times of trouble, remember the deliverance of your God. So number one, in times of prosperity, remember the goodness of your God. Number two, in times of trouble, remember the deliverance of your God. Verses 9 through 25. Here we have a summary of the events of the books of Exodus through the book of Joshua. The books of Exodus through Joshua. And the primary theme that runs through these verses is that God has been Israel's deliverer. God has delivered Israel over and over again, most notably in Exodus. God's greatest act of of, uh, miraculous work on behalf of Israel was seen in the Exodus events. So in verses 9-21, through the Exodus and the wilderness wandering. And what we should see here is that God delivered Israel. God delivered Israel first from Egypt. Verses 9-11, through when Israel was in trouble, God remembered His covenant to Abraham and consequently delivered them spectacularly from the hands of Egypt. That's what we see there in um, verses 10-11. and 11. You performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh. Verse 11, you divided the seas before them. 
God did these great, mighty, powerful works to show who He was in times of trouble. They remembered deliverance, the deliverance of their God. God also delivered them in verses 12-21 through 21 in the wilderness. God did not just hang them out to dry when they were on the other side of the Red Sea. Well, good luck to you. Hope everything works out for you. Instead, He led them in the wilderness. Look at verse 12. And with a pillar of cloud, You led them by day and with a pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go. God did not hang them out to dry. He continually led them. And verses 13 and 14, He led them with His Word. He was not only a transcendent God, high and lifted up, who could, who could perform these mighty miracles on Egypt, but He was also a near and personal God who wanted to speak to them, wanted to talk to them, have a personal relationship with them. And His relational love for them was seen most clearly in the dispensing of the law. Verse 14, uh, middle of verse 13, You gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. You made known to them your holy Sabbath. In other words, Nehemiah sees this as a good thing, that God, You spoke to us. This is one of the crowning events of Israel's history, excuse me, in the Old Testament. It was that God spoke to them by giving them the law. He also provided for their needs in verse 15. He provided manna from heaven and water in the wilderness. And the purpose of those two elements were to teach them that they depended on God for everything. God was the one who was going to give them the land. And if they were going to see that happen with their own eyes, they needed to recognize that they also depended on Him for every other thing, including their food and water. And that required for the people to depend upon God in faith. They couldn't just kind of walk through life and expect that God was going to give them whatever they wanted, but they needed to depend upon Him. And amazingly, verses 16 through 21, God does not give up on them. Verse 16, but they, here's a contrast, seeing all these great things that God has done. He's delivered, He's led, He's provided. Verse 16, but our fathers acted arrogantly and they became stubborn and did not listen to His commandments. God has multiple reasons to give up on them, doesn't He? I mean, after all that God did for them, We would expect an attitude from the people of thanksgiving and gratitude, but instead, what's their response? Verse 16, they acted arrogantly. They became stubborn and would not listen. Verse 17, they refused to listen. They did not remember. They became stubborn. Verse 18, they even built a golden calf and committed great blasphemies. After all God had done for them, you would think they would be thankful. But see, Nehemiah recognizes that our fathers were not thankful. That's why he's talking about it. He says, we're here in a position of prosperity. And we don't want to get to that place. We are ungrateful. That's why he's reminding himself and the people as he speaks to God. God had multiple reasons to give up on them. But that's not the kind of God that they or we serve. Verses 19 through 21. Notice what kind of God we do serve. Second part of verse 17, just to kind of clue us in before it shows it 
explicitly. Verse 17, the second part, but you are a God of forgiveness, gracious, and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. And you did not forsake them. This is the kind of God we serve. We have a God of forgiveness who is gracious and compassionate. And even when, verse 18, they made a false god, notice what God did in verse 19. You, in your great compassion, did not forsake them. This was your opportunity, God. They blasphemed you. They made a false god, saying this is the God who led us out of Egypt. Worship Him. You could have destroyed us there, God, but you didn't abandon us because you're compassionate. Verse 19, you did not forsake them. You continued to lead them. Verse 20, you satisfied their deepest need. You gave your good spirit, it says in verse 20, to instruct them. And God satisfied their most basic needs. He gave them food. The second part of verse 20 says, you did not withhold manna from their mouth or, and you gave them water for their thirst. God did not give up on His people when they effectively abandoned Him, when they forgot about Him, when they forsake Him. God did not give up. And so, verses 22-25, through 25, we see Joshua. One of the highlights of Israel's history is that God followed through on this promise that He had made. This is your land. I'm giving it to you. So, I'm, I'm going to bring you out of Egypt. I'm going to lead you through the wilderness. I'm going to provide for you while you're there. I'm going to bring about a new generation who trusts me. And when I do, I'm going to give you this land. It's going to be all me. That's what he says here in verses 22 to 25. Nehemiah recognizes this was God who gave them the kingdoms and allowed them to possess the land, verse 24. Allowed their people to subdue the inhabitants of the land and do with them as they pleased. This is all a result of God. So, number one, in times of prosperity, remember the goodness of God. Number two, in times of trouble, remember the deliverance of your God. And number three, in times of unfaithfulness, remember the promise to your God. Verses 26-31. through 31. In times of unfaithfulness, remember the promise to your God. Remember what you had promised to Him. This is not a one-sided relationship that God's wanting to enter into. You know, I'm, I'm trying to create this group of robots that will just follow me. I'll start leading and then I'll have a whole group of robots walking behind me. No, I want to create a relationship with these people. This is two-sided. I'm expecting things from you. So when you are unfaithful to me and you see the trouble that comes in life, this trouble is to remind you of the promise that you have made to me. In verses 26 through 31, we see Israel's unfaithfulness during the time of the judges and also during the time of the kings. First, in the time of the judges, here we see this cycle that we've seen over and over again in our study of the book of Judges. And it is this. Sin, oppression, prayer, and deliverance. Remember? Look at verse 26. We'll see the first one. Israel sinned. They became disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their backs. And just threw it off as worthless. No value to them. Killed your prophets who had admonished them so that they might return to you. And they committed great blasphemies. These prophets were trying to turn them back to God and yet just cast it off. We don't need these. 
So they sinned. So what did God do? Verse 27, Therefore you delivered them into the hand of their oppressors who oppressed them. So there's the second part. Sin, see that in Judges, and then oppression. And so what happens to the people when the oppression comes and it gets too difficult for them to bear? Well, look at the second part of verse 27. But when they, the people, cried to you in the time of their distress. In time of their distress. So they cried to heaven. That's the same words that are used in, in uh, the book of Judges. They sinned. God brought about an oppressor, some like the Ammonites or the Amalekites. And then they cried out to God, God, please help us. And when God did, when there was just that just a little glimpse that they were looking for God's help, that they would humble themselves before God in that way, He would send a deliverer. That's what those judges are. They're not people who come and sit on the throne and sit, or, or uh, sit behind a bench and say, okay, who's right, who's wrong? That's not the idea of the judges. Rather, they are deliverers. People who come and, and deliver the people. That's why you have people like Gideon and Samson and so on. God responded with deliverance. Sin, oppression, Cry for help and deliverance. See that over and over again. In fact, um, we see it again in, in verse 28. The same cycle is done again. And I think the point is to point us to the, that this is during the time of the judges. As soon as they had rest, they did evil again. There's the sin. But you, <coughs> excuse me, but you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies. And so they ruled over them. And when they cried again to you, there's a third aspect. You heard from heaven and many times you rescued them, sent a deliverer. So Israel's unfaithfulness during the time of the judges. God allowed them to be overtaken by their enemies so that Israel would wake up. Many times we don't realize how much we need God until it feels like He's far away. Hasn't that, that, that been true for you as it has been for me? We don't realize how much we need God until it feels like He is far away. And so, the most loving thing that God can do to us when we are sinning against Him and ignoring His commandments is to allow oppression to come at times. Allow us to suffer oppression from our enemies so that we depend on God. Why did Paul not have the thorn in the flesh removed? So he would not boast himself. This is a good thing, Paul says. Yes, I wanted to be gone, but, but it's actually a good thing because it helps me to rely on God. See, he recognized what I think God is teaching the people here. Sometimes oppression is God's loving way of pulling us back in. His loving, the, the, the loving staff pulling us back into the fold because we're straying too far into danger which will lead to destruction. Israel's unfaithfulness is also seen during the time of the kings. In verses 29 through 31. Verse 29, God gives them opportunity to obey. But, notice the second part of the verse, yet they acted arrogantly and did not listen to your commandments. Sounds familiar. But, verse 30, however, you bore with them for many years and admonished them by your spirit through your prophets. God continued to be long suffering with them. And yet, second part of verse 30, they would not give ear. They abandoned Him again. They kept forsaking Him. They kept denying Him, disobeying Him. And so, the last part of verse 30, He gave them over to the nations. He gave them into the hands of the peoples of the land. 
But when He did, verse 31, He did not give up on them. Nevertheless, in your great compassion, you did not make an end <coughs> excuse me. You do not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and compassionate God. These ver- these words in this verse and really throughout this passage ring in my ears because I find myself to be very much like Israel as well. I often disobey God and forget about God and want to forsake Him. And yet God is continually compassionate with me. did not make an end to me when I sinned against Him. In times of unfaithfulness, sometimes God brings about oppression to us so that we remember our promise to Him. In times of unfaithful, remember the promise to your God. So number one, in times of prosperity, remember the goodness of God. Number two, in times of trouble, remember the deliverance of God. Number three, in times of unfaithfulness, remember your promise to God. Number four, in times of repentance, remember the faithfulness of your God. In times of repentance, remember the faithfulness of your God. When your sin comes to the front of your mind, do not be overwhelmed with fear and guilt. Instead, remember the faithfulness of your God. Look at verse 32, because after all these sins that Nehemiah has recounted, you know we're responsible for these. He's even going to say later on that we're slaves in our own land and, and we're responsible for that. But notice, he doesn't wallow in misery. Instead, he recognizes and remembers God's faithfulness. Verse 32, Now therefore, after all this sin and your continued compassion on us, now therefore our God, the great, mighty, the awesome God, who keeps covenant and loving kindness, do not let the hardship seem insignificant before you. So now he's going to petition God. He hasn't asked for anything yet. He's just told God what they've done. Now he's going to petition God and say, listen, Because you are a faithful God. Don't look at our troubles as insignificant. We recognize that our part in it, that we turn from you, God. We have been unfaithful to you, but here's what we we have not forgotten, that you are powerful and you are faithful and you are loving. And you know what that means for us, friends? Is that God is not unconcerned about your troubles. Even your self-inflicted ones. God is not unconcerned about the consequences of your sin. Nehemiah recognized this. And and Nehemiah also owned up to his sin. Notice there's no blame passing. This is very easy to do as imperfect creatures who are constantly trying to justify ourselves before other people so that we can keep our image and before God. But notice Nehemiah does not do that. He doesn't say, well, you know, if they wouldn't have... He's, he's pointing the finger right at himself and his own people. For, verse 34, For our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law. Verse 35, But they in their own kingdom with your great goodness which you gave them, even though they were abounding in your goodness and, and the, they were recipients of your compassion. The end of the verse says, They did not serve you or turn from their evil deeds. So, He owns up to his sin. There's no blame passing. We've done it. It's our responsibility. And even the current trouble, the current consequences of our sin is because of us. Look at verses 36 and 37. Behold, we are slaves today. Well, how could you be slaves today? Well, they're still under the rule of the Persian Empire. 
And that wasn't the case before their sin. That was part of God's judgment on the people. It was part of God's way of, of waking them up. We are slaves today. And that's the land which you gave to our fathers to eat of its fruit and bounty. Behold, we're slaves in it. And its abundance produce is for the kings whom you've set over us. So, they're eating of our land. I mean, it should be our land. Now, again, they're in the city of Jerusalem, but they don't they don't they haven't conquered the entire land of Israel that God had promised to them at this point, okay? So at this point they're still just in Jerusalem, and so they're saying the rest of the land is is up for grabs, and that's our fault. I mean, we are responsible for that. They could have said, you know, God, you promised us that we'd have this land, and we don't have the land, so what's going on here? I mean, you promised to Abraham that his descendants would have this land. There's no sense of entitlement here, is there? No, it's... We recognize, God, that you made a great promise, and the reason that you haven't followed through on your promise is because we haven't followed through on ours. It's us. It's not any failing in you, God. It's a failing in us. We have been unfaithful. They recognize that. And this is why Nehemiah turns to God for deliverance. He recognizes that God is their only hope of deliverance. And when we get to a place where life is difficult, even if it's a result of the consequences of our own sin, when we get to a place where we recognize that our only hope of deliverance is God, then we are in a good place. Even if we are currently experiencing the consequences of our sin. That's what Nehemiah recognizes. And the seriousness of his commitment. Seriousness of this repentance is seen in verse 38. Now because of all this, we're making an agreement in writing. So they're going to make an agreement and we're going to look at that next week. In chapter 10. Our merciful God responds with favor <coughs> responds with favor to believers who acknowledge their sin. Our merciful God responds with favor to believers who acknowledge their sin. Is it hard for you to come before God and acknowledge your sin to Him personally? No one else is going to do it for you. You need to own up to your sin. That's the kind of God that's the kind of God that we serve, one who favorably responds to those who acknowledge their sin. So let me give you two applications as we conclude this morning. Number one, it's all too easy to repeat the sins of Israel. It's all too easy to repeat the sins of Israel. How did they repay God for all of his faithfulness and mercy, compassion, long-suffering. They paid it with ingratitude. Is it possible for us to repay all the mercy of God with ingratitude? If you think that it is impossible for you as a believer to follow after their sin pattern, then I think the Holy Spirit wants you to know this morning that you better take heed lest you fall. 1 Corinthians 10.12 Because if you think you're standing firm and in a place where you cannot fall, then be careful that you don't. The believers at the church in Jerusalem, the, the book of Hebrews, is written to them. 
They had become hardened to the deceitfulness of sin because they had not moved past the elementary principles of the Christian life and some of the professing believers had actually abandoned the faith. So what is it that's keeping us in the race of the Christian life? What is it that's keeping us from abandoning God? And the answer is our connection to Jesus Christ. That's why we need to live our lives in complete dependence on Jesus and His finished work on the cross. This is not just a one-time act that we do in order to receive a ticket to heaven. Ticket out of hell free. It's It's an act that we do, yes, at our initial salvation, but we do continually throughout our lives. Because we're going to be doing it for all of eternity, depending on Jesus and His finished work. If we depend on the decision that we made or on the work that we're currently doing in order to have that right relationship with God, we're looking in the wrong place. We are in a place where we could just as easily commit the sin of Israel by not acknowledging our own and not by giving gratitude to God and properly depending upon Him. second principle I think we should draw from this second application No sin or sin pattern is beyond the reach of God's hand of forgiveness. No sin or sin pattern is beyond the reach of God's hand of forgiveness. Isn't it amazing to read through just a summary of Israel's history as we have briefly this morning? It's a story of human failure and divine forgiveness. God chooses Israel. He powerfully delivers them from Egypt. He abundantly supplies for them. He gives them the land of promise. But Israel fails, forsakes, forgets, falls away, forfeits the blessings. What would you expect God to do? Instead, what God does is He lovingly pursues them. He shows them that they need Him. And yet, the cycle of failure in Israel's history continues. starts all over again. And yet, God still doesn't give up on them. And so, here is how I want to encourage you this morning. Don't be discouraged by the history of disobedience in your life. Nehemiah looked back on the troubled history of Israel. They had been lacking nothing, as James Hamilton says in his commentary. They have been lacking nothing and they appreciated nothing. Yet God supplied for them. And they continually grew fat on His resources and yet they continued to disobey Him. Despite all that, their ongoing disobedience, Nehemiah focuses on the mercy of God and he depended on that mercy. So no matter what kind of sin you've had in your past or pattern of sin, you are not beyond the reach of God's hand of forgiveness. My point is not to say we can sin however we want. We can presume upon God's grace and live however we want. That's not what I'm saying. As if, you know, if we can just sin however we want and God's going to eventually pursue us and, you know, He'll he'll let us into heaven. That kind of thinking is a recipe for final condemnation. Because those who don't understand and appreciate God's grace will die without it. The point that I'm trying to make here is that as long as you have breath, it's not 
too late to return to God. As long as you have breath, it's not too late. So, let me remind you that God loves to hear from people who are willing to acknowledge their sin. Humble themselves before Him. No matter what the sin is, bring it before God, acknowledge it, and depend upon His grace. Here's how James says it in chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep, and let your laughter be turned into mourning. Let's pray. Father, thankful for Your faithfulness to us despite our failures. We often stray far from You. And we need Your loving rod to pull us back in. And we praise You for those times, even in which we suffer the consequences of our own sin, because it helps us to acknowledge that we need You. Lord, we do not live by the provisions of this life, this physical life, emotional life. We live by every word that proceeds from Your Word. And so we pray for more grace. Pray for more help. Help us to acknowledge our sin. Lord, it's so hard to just say the same thing about our sin that You say about it. It's so easy for us to hide behind all of our good works and hide behind our good deeds and our long history of faithfulness and forget that every single one of our sins is an offense against You the holy God who created us and bought us with the blood of Jesus. So, Lord, we praise You for the promise that You have given to us in John's epistle that if we confess our sins, that You are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. We need both of those this morning, Lord. Let me just ask You for the next few moments to... Confess any sin before God now in the quiet of the time that we have. Father, now having acknowledged our sin, we... Hold tightly to Your faithfulness and Your love. And we are confident that that You are God who loves us and pursues us and that You draw near to us when we draw near to You. praise You for that. Continue to pursue us when we stray. In Jesus' name, Amen.